Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the China trying to influence our elections story comes to Queen's Park and costs Doug Ford one of his MPPs. We'll take a deep dive into the health care spending the Ontario government has planned over the next five years and whether that will get done all the promises the province has made for hospitals, surgical backlogs, and getting more nurses into the system. Then we'll speak with the independent financial accountability officer Peter Weltman on whether his analysis jives with the government's. Spoiler alert, he says the province is more than $21 billion short if it's going to fulfill its commitments. And the province appeals a court decision which would strike down the government's election spending rules. It's Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. So let's get to it. JMM, lots to get to this week, including an extraordinary story off the top. I can tell you in four decades of watching Queen's Park, I can't ever recall a story like this. Vincent Key, who is the MPP for Don Valley North in Toronto, has left the Progressive Conservative Government Caucus and will sit as an independent because he has been swept up in the story that until now has exclusively been a federal liberal story, namely the attempt by Chinese authorities to influence our elections in Canada. We should say off the top that Mr. Key has called the story, which was first reported by Global News, false and defamatory, and says uh, he will fight to clear his name. Uh, Nevertheless, here are the allegations. Global News reported that Mr. Key served as a, quote, financial intermediary in interference schemes by the Chinese Communist Party that were described in two Privy Council offices intelligence reports, which that media outlet had reviewed. Uh, Global does not name its sources, but it is reporting that Mr. Key received about $50,000 from the Chinese consulate in Toronto that was channeled through a series of intermediaries. If true, these are obviously serious allegations, which is why Mr. Key is stepping aside from the caucus so that he can uh, devote his time to clearing his name. Uh, Mr. Key, like uh, most of the Conservative caucus uh, at Queen's Park, was first elected in 2018 uh, in the first PC majority government, and then he was re-elected in last year's election. Now, we're not going to do too much on this story right now, given that everything we think we know at this stage, uh, it's just allegations. They have not been proven in a court. Uh, We in this country believe in innocence until proven guilty. Uh, And furthermore, we're going to take a deeper dive in this week's On Pauly newsletter, uh, which you can get at tvo.org slash newsletters. That's tvo.org slash newsletters. Suffice to say, this story isn't going away in the nation's capital, and who knows if there are more shoes to fall at Queen's Park. You know, by dropping Vincent Key from the caucus, the Tories are presumably thinking that they can bring this story to a, a swifter conclusion or at least minimize the damage to the governing party. Uh, but it's a different story from what we've seen uh, federally, where the Liberals seem to just be suffering from this drip, drip, drip series of revelations. Uh, anyway, as you say, we will be uh, keeping our eyes on it uh, as more develops. I'm sure we will revisit this if we need to. Anyway, to be continued. Now, on to issue two. 
We found that the province is making significant investments to expand capacity in hospitals, home care and long-term care, but the overall spending plan is not enough to meet its commitments, let alone increases in demand from Ontario's growing and aging population. That is the voice of Peter Weltman, the Financial Accountability Officer for Ontario, who will join us actually in a few minutes to talk about his study on health care spending over the next several years. And let's just set this up by saying the Financial Accountability Office studied five key areas of health spending. Number one, hospital capacity. Number two, long-term and home care. Number three, surgical wait lists and wait times. Number four, emergency departments. And number five, workforce shortages such as nurses and personal support workers. And as we start, uh, JMM, why don't you give the overarching mission of this study by the FAO? Essentially, the FAO is studying actual health spending committed to by the Ontario government uh, to the fiscal year of 2027-28. And it's comparing that planned expenditure to what the actual demand for health services is likely to be. Right? You can model what healthcare spending is likely to be based on the size of the population, how old it will be, that kind of thing. And, you know, economists at the FAO have concluded that the government really has not come close to fully funding health care compared to what the demand will be, what will be needed. Uh, In fact, the shortfall, if the government were to do nothing, would be uh, more than $21 billion between now and the year 2028. What that means is if the government is going to hit its targets, it's going to have to do a combination of either taking money from other programs, uh, increasing federal transfers, or using billions from the province's contingency funds to make all of those dollars add up. Right. So um, let's go sector by sector here. The five areas that I just mentioned that the FAO examined and give our listeners a better sense of the challenges ahead. And let's start with number one, hospital capacity. The province wants... 7,000 more beds of capacity in its hospital system, and it wants to get there in two ways. It wants to create 4,500 new beds, and it wants to repurpose 2,500 existing beds. That's how you get to the 7,000. And it wants to repurpose those existing beds by getting so-called bed blockers out of hospitals and into more appropriate settings, such as long-term care homes, thus freeing up those 2,500 existing hospital beds in that fashion. Now, couple of problems here. First, the FAO estimates we're going to need 7,500, not just 7,000 beds, so we're still going to be short. And second, if you're going to kick people out of hospitals and put them in long-term care settings, well, uh, this just in, you got to have long-term care settings to send them to. And the FAO says the province is not on track to make that happen either. So on that note, let's look at the second sector, long-term care. The province plans to significantly expand home care and long-term care capacity. This includes adding 30,000 net new long-term care beds by 2028 and spending an additional $1 billion over three years to increase the supply of home care services. That is a 10% increase in spending over the next five years compared to just a 5% increase in spending through the rest of the system. But the problem is, despite all that, the FAO estimates it won't meet demand because the population is aging so quickly. Mm-hmm. On to our third sector now, surgical wait lists and wait times. And again, hang in there with the numbers here because this is important stuff. Because of COVID-19, our hospitals performed almost 400,000 fewer surgeries because so much of the healthcare system had to focus on treating the pandemic rather than all the other things it would normally have handled. 
There's a quarter of a million people on the surgical wait list at the moment, a quarter of a million. And almost half of them are called long waiters, meaning they have been waiting longer than the guidelines recommend. Now, if we continue the way we're going, the province is on track to reduce the surgical wait list back to 200,000 patients by July of 2024. Now, that's not an elimination of the wait list, obviously, but rather just back to where we were pre-pandemic at 200,000 people waiting for surgeries. So better, but clearly not great. On to the fourth sector, emergency departments. Uh, just a bit of background here. Because of a doctor shortage during the uh, worst of COVID-19, there were at least 145 unplanned emergency department closures in Ontario in 2022. Let's repeat that, 145 unplanned emergency department closings. Uh, the FAO did note that in their prior research before 2022, they could only find one case of an unplanned ER closure due specifically to a labor shortage. Hmm. So this really was an unprecedented time. Uh, the province is trying to increase physician coverage, uh, which is a problem mostly in northern and remote rural areas. Uh, and that leads us to Area 5. Right on. And that is the workforce in the health sector. And the FAO estimates that Ontario needs 86,700 additional nurses and personal support workers by the year 2027-28. That's about 26% more nurses than we have today. 26% and 45% more PSWs. So huge increases are required in both of those fields. Little Johnny, little Janie, you want a career in the future? Go to a college in Ontario and learn how to become a nurse or a PSW. There's going to be great demand. What is the plan to handle that shortfall? Well, the government has announced several ideas over the past couple of years, including increasing pay to get nurses to stick around and not retire, creating more nursing and PSW spots in the college system, as I just indicated, and reducing training and regulatory barriers, say, for foreign trained nurses to be able to work here. And even with all of that, the FAO estimates a shortfall of 33,000 nurses and PSWs by the year 2028. And you know what that means. Without enough nurses or PSWs, we won't be able to expand hospital capacity or long-term care capacity or home care capacity or hospital emergency department capacity. Are you getting the drift here? We're not going to be able to reduce the wait lists and the wait times for surgeries and increase the hours of direct care provided to long-term care residents. So you can see that really all five of the areas that we've been talking about here very much depend on getting the workforce numbers significantly higher. The FAO, incidentally, says we can do that. But again, to hit all those targets, it'll require allocating $21 billion more to health spending than the government has currently budgeted. And with that... Let's take a breath. <laughs> I did like one point in the FEO's report about how uh, one of the most effective policies for uh, increasing the, the recruitment of PSWs has been the wage bump that the government announced. And I think sometimes we like to think that policy is very complicated and there's no easy solutions. And it turns out that actually if you pay people more, you will get more people showing up for recruitment. What a shock. What a shock. So, with all of that background in place, we are delighted to welcome back to the On Poly podcast, Peter Waltman, Ontario's Independent Financial Accountability Officer. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks very much for having me back. Peter, let's start with this. Why did you choose to do an Ontario Health Sector Spending Plan review in the first place? Well, it's a pretty easy question to answer. The, the health spend 
is the largest program in the province. It's around 75 billion. It's going up to about 90 over the next six years. Represents a huge chunk of the budget. This was a spending plan that was tabled by the government back in the fall when they tabled all of their spending estimates. We were asked to do uh, this report, to do this estimates analysis. And given the small size of our office, we were able to, it takes time to get these done and we got it out the door uh, just recently. You mentioned that you were asked to do this. Uh, some of your reports are self-generated. Others are requested by an MPP. Are, are you able to say what happened here? Um, well, we do spending analysis as a matter of course, an estimates analysis. In this particular instance, we were asked by two separate MPPs to have a look at the government's uh, health spending plan. And you've said before that uh, Ontario needs to, and I'm quoting you here, uh, recalibrate its objectives and provide a realistic spending forecast uh, that aligns with the costs of an aging population. Give us a sense, what does recalibration mean? What does that look like? Well, there's two things. So the government has undertaken some significant initiatives, policy initiatives, a couple, and we we spelled them out in the report. One of them, for example, is adding 30,000 new long-term care beds. Another one is adding an extra 77,000 hospital beds to increase capacity in both those areas. So those will cost money. The 30,000 long-term care beds have to be built. Money has to be spent to build them, but money also has to be spent to fund them. That means you have to have staff, you have to have operational expenses paid for. In our calculations, the government hasn't identified anywhere in their spending plan where they're, they're, they've stepped up with enough money to fund all of those different policy initiatives. So it's like, okay, I want to buy, you know, I want to buy uh, 7,000 beds, but I'm only going to set aside enough money to spend for, you know, to, to pay for some, a little bit less than that. So number one, they need to close that gap. And that gap is $21 billion over the six-year horizon. And number two is, is 7,000 hospital beds or is 30,000 long-term care beds enough beds to meet the growing demand from an aging population? And our analysis says no. Okay, tons to follow up on there, so let's do that. And as uh, Deep Throat said to Woodward and Bernstein, follow the money. So that's what we're going to do here. If the province is going to meet its targets, it's got to find some more money, as you've pointed out. And fortunately for the province, there is more money to be found. There's an increase in federal transfers coming. There's the money that the province has in its own contingency fund or its rainy day fund. Now, if we include all of that money, will that make up the shortfall you've just identified? So the federal funding is, we figure, is going to be about $10.9 billion in new money over the forecast horizon. So that'll go, you know, that'll address about half of the short of the 21 change shortfall. There is some money in the contingency funds uh, that we identified back in our economic and budget outlook a few months ago, and that was about 12 and a half odd billion over the three year period. So we're, and that's not all necessarily going to be able for healthcare, but there certainly is some money already in in the budget that could be reallocated to uh, to fund the shortfall. Now, having said that, I want to point out that there are some risks to our $21 billion number. The key one is salary uh, wage settlements, right? So if wage settlements come in higher than what they have been historically, and there's good reason to believe they will given the inflationary environment, then that $21 billion will go up. Your report also notes that about 68,000 more nurses and uh, PSWs will be needed in Ontario's hospital and uh, long-term care homes by 2027. Uh, the government has announced some policies to try and help with workforce development and retention. Can we 
talk at all about you know, you know how successful that's going to be. How can the government actually reach the workforce targets that it has? Yeah, so it's uh, they've announced a few things. Um, that's we don't get into that in this report in terms of what they can do, but certainly rules around who can practice, scope of work. So what kind of work can certain folks undertake? Where are you delivering healthcare? I mean, we've seen pharmacists been given a little bit more power to deliver uh, some sort of prescription drugs, et cetera. Um, so there are lots of things that can be done that way. Clearly, of course, there's wages and working conditions. So we know that. Wait, uh, nurses in, in Ontario are the, amongst the lowest paid in Canada, and probably the lowest paid. We know that personal support workers in, in Ontario are paid below the Canadian average. So we know that uh, attracting and retaining staff in any domain, uh, wages and working conditions are certainly a part of that. Peter, I presume that the government has an opportunity uh, to address these shortfalls in its annual budget, which will be brought down March 23rd by Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey. And uh, I guess we can do a little sneak preview here. You're going to be with us on the agenda on TV on budget night, so we're looking forward to that. But give us a hint of your thinking here and now. What are you going to be looking for in the budget to determine whether the government has taken your work seriously here? I think the government does take our work seriously, and that's not always necessarily going to be recorded in whatever announcements or policy proposals they're going to make. I mean, one thing about being an FAO and a PBO prior to that is you have to recognize that just because you do something that makes sense and the government likes, they aren't necessarily going to give you the credit for that. So if you're looking for credit, this isn't the right job to be in. I'll put that out there. What we'll look at is, you know, what are they going to, you know, what is, are there going to be any different new funding towards their existing policy commitments? Are there going to be any new policy commitments? Are we going to see something new in terms of how healthcare is delivered or education or whatever the case is? And maybe, we'll, you know, we'll eventually we'll look at those costs, but not right away. I'm also interested in seeing what the revenue forecast is going to be because they've modified that forecast quite a bit in their third quarter update. So their revenue number is actually gone up a lot from, from their fall economic statements, actually getting close to what, what our forecast is. Um, so I'm curious to see what their overall fiscal plan is, what some of the assumptions are, and uh, whether they're going to, you know, how much they're going to close the gap in some of the spending and what their overall budget and uh, deficit surplus situation looks like. Well, let me do a quick follow-up on that because, of course, the numbers here are so staggeringly large compared to what any you know, normal person has to deal with in their lives. So I guess I should ask the obvious question, is a $21 billion shortfall, it, can that gap be closed or is it simply too big to do? It's a big gap. But I should emphasize, too, that's over, you know, the, the horizon, right? That's not next year. That's over in the next five and a half, six years. So it, it's a it's a it's a big gap, but it's not something that that can't be closed. And that's but, but you know, stepping back, that's a dilemma all governments face is that they want to do certain things. They want to try to address certain policy problems. Healthcare is a pretty interesting situation right now. Um those cost money. They can put out plans to decide how they're going to attack these things, uh, but they have to fund those. Um, you know, you can't just wave a magic wand and expect 30,000 new beds to show up fully staffed, fully funded, and have the problem looked after. There are there are ancillary costs that need to be that need to be taken into account. So it's like anything. If the government really wants to make this a priority, they will find the money. And maybe they can't make everything in there a priority. Maybe they have to make some compromises and fund certain things to a certain degree and other things that might fully fund. And that's the same for any program that they have to manage. 
You mentioned earlier the issue of uh, whether even the government's stated uh, spending plans can keep up with the aging population. And uh, I, I don't mean to be too bleak about this, but even if the government does find the, the extra $10 billion to, to close the, the, the gap that we're talking about, it might, in fact, not be enough. And I'm just wondering, do you have any sense of, of like, what would it take for Ontario to be ready for the population that is uh, aging and, and, and that is going to be as large as what is coming not that many years from now? Yeah, so we did look at that in the report. So we looked at five areas, but I'll call a focus on three to get to your question. So one of them would be hospital capacity. Uh, the other one is home care capacity, and the third one would be long-term care capacity. So they are all intertwined, as we know. We won't talk about emergency wait lists, and we won't uh, we won't talk about um, surgery. So we said in our report that we think in order to keep hospital capacity the same in twenty uh, in twenty twenty seven twenty as it was in twenty nineteen, they're going to need to add seventy five hundred hospital beds, not seven thousand. So there's a small number there that they'd have to to add. Um, on the thirty thousand long term care beds, what we found is that the number of long-term care beds for the population that tends to be in those beds, i.e. 75 and over, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drop somewhat. It'll go from 71 beds to 70 beds per, per 100,000. So there's small differences. It's not going to quite achieve the, the objective of meeting the existing demand. On the home care side, right now, it looks like we have quite a bit of home care capacity. It's grown more quickly than the population that typically uses the home care. So on that side, that looks that looks reasonable so far. I know you were being facetious a moment ago when you said this is not the job to go into if you're looking for standing ovations. But having said that, I mean, we've had you on this podcast numerous times. You've been on the agenda before. Uh, I think it is widely seen across Ontario that your organization does good, independent, unbiased work. And, and, and so I am kind of curious... Does anybody in the Ministry of Finance ever come up to you and say, you know, Peter, that, has a, that was actually a really good report and really helped us out with our work? Actually, yes. <laughs> uh, it does happen. I won't say when or which levels, but we certainly do get that. We actually have really good collaboration behind the scenes uh, with officials because we will provide them with a, a, a draft way in advance just so that we're not disclosing any cabinet records and to make sure we're not saying things that are completely idiotic. So maybe that's not the right word to use on this podcast. Um, well, that's usually our job. <laughs> that was an I-bomb for you, Steve, as opposed to an F-bomb. But um, <laughs> So certainly uh, we get comments, well, you know, in terms of our methodology might be a little different than theirs, so our forecasting might be a little different. So there's some good good collaboration. And, uh, and certainly we really try hard to make sure that when we do something, it is seen as authoritative, neutral, and nonpartisan. And everything, you know, that is, that is our, our bread and butter, if you will. Um, so this way, everybody can use our reports. We don't have an axe to grind. We don't have a policy angle we're trying to push. Uh, we're sort of like the referees. We call them as we see them. And you can like it or not like it. It's kind of, it's not in the legislation, right? The legislation doesn't say that I need to make people like me. Um, <laughs> so that's what, that's what it is. Who's the Fred Van Vliet of the Ontario legislature right now who has press conferences dropping F-bombs saying that you guys are doing a terrible job? Um, I haven't really been paying attention to the much, but uh, <laughs> so, there may ever. be several that just may not be public. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
Peter Weltman, the Financial Accountability Officer of the, uh, the Ontario Legislature, thank you so much once again for being on the podcast. Well, thanks once again for having me on the podcast. And now on to issue three. Well, we promised you last week that we'd come back to an important decision made by the Ontario Court of Appeal relating to the province's election expenses. That story just broke as we were recording last week's podcast. So here we are a week later, and we will get into this now. JMM, as we often do, let's set this up first with the background. What did the law at the center of this controversy attempt to do. This was the government's Protecting Elections and Defending Democracy Act, which listeners may remember was the second attempt at restricting third-party spending during Ontario elections. I should say during and substantially before Ontario elections. Uh, The first law was ruled unconstitutional by an Ontario court because it restricts third-party spending up to a year before uh, election day, and that was seen as too broad. Uh, It was ruled unconstitutional. The government brought the same law forward but used the notwithstanding clause to overrule that court decision. So that law was in place during last year's election. Now, initially, the government used the notwithstanding clause of the Constitution to set aside a previous court decision it didn't like and impose the rules on election spending that it did like. So what happened next? Uh, Well, they won the ensuing election, for starters. Uh, But in the meantime, the unions whose advertising was most directly constrained by the new law uh, proceeded to challenge it in court, arguing that the government used the notwithstanding clause improperly. Uh, Remember that legislatures can't use the notwithstanding clause on everything under the sun. There are two uh, crucial sections of the charter that cannot be overridden. These are the democracy and mobility rights of the charter, uh, sections three through six if you're a keener and want to go and look up the text. Uh, So last year, a lower court found that the notwithstanding clause applied and they allowed the the law to go into effect for that 2022 election. Last week, uh, the Court of Appeal found that the law didn't just violate uh, the right to free expression, and that is a chunk of the charter that you can use the notwithstanding clause on, uh, but they in fact found that it violated Ontarians' right to cast an informed vote. Uh, That right is embedded in the democratic rights section of the charter and cannot be overridden with the notwithstanding clause. So in effect, the court has said that even using the notwithstanding clause cannot save this particular law. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now the Court of Appeal, which is, of course, the highest court in the province of Ontario, it has turned thumbs down on the government again. So let's just set this very clear here. Can the government use the notwithstanding clause again to set aside that decision and reimpose the law? No. What they can do and are doing, according to the Attorney General's office, is appealing this decision to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, And it will be up to Canada's highest court to decide whether the lower court was right and uh, the use of the notwithstanding clause saves this law, or whether the appeals court was right. And uh, this is a case where the notwithstanding clause uh, can't be used. And I I should say that I've been referring to the appeals court, but in this case, it was actually a split decision. It was a 2-1 decision. Uh, Two justices on the appeals court uh, believed that uh, the notwithstanding clause could not be used. There was a a dissenting opinion who uh, really sided with the lower court in that case. Well, I believe everywhere in the democratic world, two-thirds beats one-third, except on Toronto City Council. (laughs) Yes, indeed. On the the court of appeal, two-thirds still carries the day. Uh, All right. So given that the Court of Appeal has overturned the law and given that the new hearing before the Supreme Court of Canada has not yet happened, 
Where are we in terms of this law and its uh, application or not right now? So the law is going to stay in effect for now. I mean, even if the uh, government had not appealed this decision, the Court of Appeal decision did give the government a year to rewrite the law. Uh, So this law is going to stay in effect. There are two things that I want to draw people's attention to uh, before we wrap up this section. First, I think it's fair to say that more provinces have been using the notwithstanding clause uh, more often than we are used to seeing historically in Canada, and certainly Ontario has, has used it more in, uh, let's say, the last five years since Doug Ford was elected. Well, given that no one's ever used it before in Ontario, that is absolutely right. right. Ford's the first guy to use it. I am mathematically <laughs> unimpeachable on that one. <laughs> um, and so I think one thing we are going to see more of, and, and it's... Part of the strategy I think you're going to see more lawyers bring to the courts is uh, an attempt to, uh, let's call shoehorn in arguments that when they want to have a law struck down, they are you're going to see more lawyers arguing that a law specifically breaches these sections of the charter that we are talking about, these democratic and mobility rights that you can't use uh, the notwithstanding clause on. Whatever you or I may think of the merits of those arguments... Uh, We are not lawyers or jurists, but I I think it's just a a predictable sort of action-reaction outcome of what we are seeing. The second thing I want to draw people's attention to, uh, you alluded to uh, the Toronto City Council earlier. Uh, There was a different case, our listeners may remember, that involved the protection of democratic rights uh, in the Charter, and that was the case where uh, the provincial government cut Toronto City Council in half uh, with a, a very quick law, and they threatened to but did not actually end up invoking the notwithstanding clause in that case. Uh, But the point I want to emphasize there is, while these are not totally comparable cases, uh, the majority on the Supreme Court in that case did take, I would say, a a pretty narrow reading of when democratic rights in the Charter are infringed. So right now, I don't think we could say that the Supreme Court is automatically going to side with the Court of Appeal here. Hmm, Interesting. Okay. I guess they've got less time to figure this out than we think, because although the next election isn't for another three plus years, the spending limits also refer to time before the writ period. And that, of course, is much sooner than three and a half years from now. Right. So the spending limits kick in a year before the next election, which under current law would mean they go into effect in June of 2025. The next election will be in June of 2026. Uh, So it would be good, if at all possible, to have an answer from the Supreme Court before then, if possible. Supreme Court justices, are you listening? We hope so. That is the On Poly podcast for Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. Remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I continue our look at the apparent attempt by Chinese government officials to influence politics here in Ontario. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Yeah, you're really going to make me read this one. All right. Here's an email (laughs) from listener Andrew who writes... Great episode. Thanks for the explanation on the new liberal leadership election rules. On film references, perhaps John Michael confused Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece, There Will Be Math, with the Coen Brothers debut feature, Math Simple. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Andrew. Now, in case anybody didn't hear last week's, you said, oh, there's math going on here, or there will be math, or something like that, uh, because I mentioned some numbers of some kind, and then you referenced a movie which apparently... 
uh, Siskel and Ebert was not the right movie. So uh, should we check this? Is Andrew right? Did you mix your movies up here? Uh, Andrew is correct. There is proof. I, I did ask Matthew to grab the audio from last week's episode of me realizing my mistake. It wasn't a Coen Brothers film, right? Uh, there will be <laughs> there will be blood. Anyway. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a goofy one. Sorry. Uh, Folks, this is the secret of our success here on this podcast. Matthew does an incredible amount of editing to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Try as I might, for 15 years, I have been unable to keep Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, distinct from the Coen brothers' No Country for Old Men, in my brain. (laughs) They both came out at around the same time, and for some reason, my brain just refuses to remember which one is which. Well, if you insist on going to see intelligent, good, thought-provoking movies, this is going to happen. You should just do what I do and stick with all the action, you know, the Marvel movies and that type of thing. Uh, well, I mean, since I had a kid, most of my movie-going experiences have all been, you know, animated features and not even all of them very good. There you go. <laughs> have, you, have you got through Sailor Moon yet? Anyway, no, not yet. That's another story. <laughs> just another uh, reminder, a special announcement, that Nam Kiwanuka from TVO's The Thread will be joining us next week for a special segment to talk about the second season of her show, The Thread with Nam Kiwanuka. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shahir Tejvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people. And apparently H5N1, the avian flu, is upon us now as well. So let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Stay safe, Steve.